This episode is sad. Today we're talking about Help Me to Find My People, the African-American search for family lost in slavery by Heather Andrea Williams from UPenn. And it is pretty heavy. We're going to talk about how family separation affected enslaved people and how they continue to hope and long for and look for their loved ones afterwards, including writing to newspapers in search of them for decades after the Civil War. Next episode will be a little lighter. We're going to talk about desegregating recreational facilities like pools and amusement parks. But for right now, it's going to get a little heavy because the opening fact of this episode is that family separation affected enslaved people of all ages. And turns out one in three kids was either separated from their parents or had one or more of their parents separated from them, which is so many children. It's a lot of kids and... You know, that number, a third, numbers in this time period for me are elusive in a way, but there's this geographer who's done that assessment. And especially starting in the 1820s, 30s, up to the Civil War, so 1860s, and even during the Civil War, you see this just vast movement of enslaved people from the Upper South to the Lower South, because America was expanding. White people are taking over more and more land from Native Americans and pushing them farther west, you know, to Indian country, what we now call Oklahoma, or you go wherever, but you're leaving this fertile land in North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and they're just pushing them out. And then you see the Black people being taken from the Upper South to make that land into plantations, mostly cotton fields. And 1808 is when the United States legally abolished the Atlantic slave trade. So legally, no more people were to be coming in from the other places from which people had come as slaves. And so the big market was from people who were already enslaved in Virginia, in North Carolina, in Maryland moving them where this land was opening up. So vast numbers of people moving, and every move could mean a separation. Of course, not everybody has a family or had a family. I mean, you had a family at some point, but your mother may have died. But most often when somebody was sold away, They were leaving people behind or that one third, one of their parents might be sold off or both their parents. And then, of course, if you go even farther, a sibling, uh, an uncle, an aunt. And so the constant possibility of instability. And one of the things that I try to say clearly is that not everybody experienced family separation, because I think it's really important for us to not clump all Black people at any time into the same category. But the possibility of separation certainly affected everybody, because if you were owned by somebody, you could be sold. If your mother was owned, your mother could be sold. And so that was always a possibility. And that had an effect on people, knowing that that was that was certainly possible. And it would not be likely for you to reach adulthood without knowing somebody who'd been sold, 
you know, uh, whether it was your family member or not. It's a lot of people. It's terrifying, especially for kids. You explained that that's one of the like early realities that kids had to face was that as much as they expected their parents to protect them from the world, that's not something that their parents could stop in any right. way. Yeah. And I, I saw that, like, I didn't go into the work knowing that. I was uncovering that as I looked at more and more sources. You know, a lot of the people who wrote about separation were adults when they wrote these, what we call slave narratives. You might also call them autobiographies, but they get clumped into this category of slave narratives. And what you saw, what I saw over and over and over and over that led me to that conclusion is that people say that as young children, often they didn't even know they were slaves. You're a child and the labor that's going to be extracted from you over your lifetime may not have kicked in yet. Or you're doing small jobs, you know, you're running for water. You don't understand what slavery is and that you are enslaved. And then over time, you start to give meaning to that and you start to attach that to yourself. And that often came in the stories that I saw when a sale took place or let's say an owner died, you know, and children started to hear the owner's sick. The owner's very sick. He's an old man or he's been sick. And the parents, the adults in the community started talking to each other, kind of whispering at night in the cabins and in the, in the slave quarters, you know, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen when he dies? Because he, he may own, and, you know, it could also be a woman, but most of the time it was a man. He may own 50 people, 100 people, 400 people. And they were aware that once he died, something important was going to shift. And it might be that all the people would be sold. It might be that they would be divided up among his heirs. And, and they wouldn't say, get six people, you get a, a certain value of people, which in and of itself might mean separation, because you may want two 19-year-old boys or young men who are considered prime slaves and so that might break up a family, you know, because you've got to give <laughs> the monetary value in these people to these heirs. And so the children started to hear this concern by their parents, or they would see a white man come onto the farm or onto the plantation. And then one of their friends, you know, some little kid was taken away and they started to realize that they were slaves and that being a slave meant that you could be sold and, and taken from your family. And third, your parents, who you look to for protection and care and, and nourishment, couldn't stop this from happening. They, they were as powerless as, as you were. And so I came to see it through their discovery of it. And you see several, many people saying something similar, that kind of awakening at, it could be age seven, nine, 10, because by the time you're 10, you probably know, because now you're going to work. The white kids are going to school or having a tutor in the house or on the plantation, you go to the fields. So it's, it's in that age, you know, seven, eight, nine, 
that you're making this this discovery. That's when some of the like really just like sad stories start. We talk about the way that like parents watch their kids take it away and the way that they they fall out because that's it's so sad. They want so much to be able to protect their kids and keep their children near and they can't. Yeah. They're trying to keep their children and then sometimes they're trying to just just let me keep one of them. <laughs> you know, this is a, a woman who's on the ground. Just let me just let me keep one. And she's just pushed off. And you think about that kind of pain. And the children, the younger children, even at that point, sometimes they don't fully understand yet what's happening. They don't understand the long-term consequences. They see that their mother is agonized or their father, but they don't understand that this man who's putting them on onto the carriage is taking them away from their parent. And then sometimes it's down the road, literally down the road, when night comes and they're not back with their family. Another day comes and, and they're still away, that they start to fully realize this is a permanent separation and that they're not going to see their mothers again or their fathers or their siblings. You know, I think we've all experienced pain and Many of us have experienced some form of separation, whether it was long-term or short-term, but it's still hard to fathom what that must have been like, you know? We're so accustomed now to the many sources of information that are available that we, we could possibly search. But, you know, if you think about a few years ago, those children being separated from families at the Mexican border, where the U.S. government, for all its knowledge and all its sources of information, didn't think it was important enough to record the names and or to do DNA testing or whatever it might be that would provide a, a link going forward between these parents and children so that they could be identified. It just wasn't important enough. And so we've seen it played out just in the last three, four years. And this is what was happening for generations of people. Nobody cared enough. They're going to sell you and you're gone. And that's it. It, it wasn't even just kids. That was one type of thing. And with kids, there was always that like slow realization of what was happening. But it happened into adulthood, too. You have a whole chapter on like spousal separation. Because slaves cannot legally marry each other, which meant... That whole situation was arbitrarily up to owners, got to decide. You had to ask your owner's permission to get married. And then when the owner wanted to sell people apart, marriage over. Right. The law was constructed to serve the purposes of the people who were making the laws, who were, of course, the elite people in the society, many of those slave owners. And so... Marriage is a contract, you know, much as I want to think about marriage as love and caring and personal commitment. When you enter into a marriage, you also enter into a legally binding contract, which, you know, you can decide, the two of you can decide you no longer want to have that and you dissolve that contract. But the right to form contracts was denied 
to enslaved people. So they couldn't form a contract to sell a goat or a horse because they're not even supposed to own a goat or a horse, right? They can't enter into formal contracts. And marriage is a contract. You can't enter into that. And why don't you want them to enter into a marital contract? Because that gives the parties certain rights. And certainly in a society where, you know, a patriarchal society where men were in, in control, that might mean a man could say to the white man who owned him or owned his wife, I don't want her doing that kind of work. Don't whip her, right? Like might want to exert the same kinds of control that a white man could exercise. And so you want to make sure that's not happening. And so the enslaved people often thought about their connections as a marriage. And they say, we know that we, we can't legally marry. We know that we're not really married, but we think of it as a marriage. And I, I'm married to this person because I love him, because I love her. But the title of that chapter is Let No Man Put Asunder. And that's because you see enslaved people saying when they married us, they never use those words. The white people use that when they got married, let no man put asunder. But for us, that was not the case. And I went and I looked at Methodist vows and Baptist vows and other vows, you know, because I wanted to know. I've seen lots of weddings take place on, I don't know, soap operas on TV, whatever. I've been to weddings. But is this a modern thing? So I wanted to know what was being said at the time. And when you look at those vows from the 1800s, even the 1700s, you see it says what God has put together, let no man put asunder. And these black people are saying that doesn't apply to us because the owner, male or female, can decide that I'm in debt and I need to make some money. And the best way for me to make money is to sell Susan. Yeah, Susan's married to John, but it doesn't matter. I'm not selling John today. Or as very often was the case, Susan and John might belong to two different people. You know, so they may have married across plantations or abroad, as, as the white people called it. And so you, you couldn't sell the husband you can only sell the, the person you own. And so all of that's going on, and it's all about control and power by white people over Black people's lives. And it played out so that people experience these kinds of separations. And one of the things I, I show in the book is that people tried in so many ways to intervene in those separations. You know, please buy my husband so that his owner won't sell him. They're about to sell him away. But if you buy him, then he could stay here with me. And people are trying to do these kinds of negotiations, you know, but they're doing it from a place of very little power. I won't say total powerlessness, but very little power can they take into those kinds of um, negotiations. It's more pleading than negotiating. Even, I forgot about it, but back to legality, you talked about with kids, there was no kind of legal protection that like a very small child couldn't be separated from their mother. Yeah, I think um, Louisiana 
had a provision that you couldn't sell a child away from the mother if the child was under age 10. And Louisiana, remember, for a lot of this period was ruled by the French. So it was a little different from the English colonies. And then I think Alabama in something like 1859 put a law in place that said if the child is under 14, you can't sell but And that came very late. Um, but for the other states, it doesn't matter. You could sell a mother and leave her infant behind. You could sell a three-year-old or give away because, you know, these separations were taking place through sale, but also through gifts. I, you know, as I talked about with somebody dying and, and bequeathing these people to, to their heirs or your daughter gets married and she gets a certain number or your your son gets married, they go off now to start their lives and they get a certain number of people who go with them. And that might include a three-year-old, but not the mother of the three-year-old. The disruption, there were so many permutations to it. You know, They could do what they wanted to do is, is the bottom line. Ooh, the book. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, we should talk about it. You have a chapter that's kind of I wrote it in my notes is white guilt and white denial about we talked about it on the show before actually the way that a lot of times the cruelty of slavery was justified by saying that black people didn't feel the same way that white people did, which. That was just something that it seems like white people kind of had to internalize to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was really curious. I go into the process of writing a book with questions, you know, those ads that people were searching for family. Well, how did this happen? What are these feelings that people are having that are being expressed in these ads? As I did more and more research, it, it occurred to me to just look at the white people who were in the picture. They're the ones selling the people. They're the ones giving them away. They are the slave traders. So white people are present that when you have the auction, you have the purchasers. And who are these people? And I wanted to know, the book is really exploring the material conditions of slavery. How is it under what conditions are these separations taking place, financial circumstances and so forth. And I'm very curious about the emotions of the Black people. And so I thought, you know, I want to know about the white people too. They're present and very often they're just unexamined in a sense. And so I wanted to know what they were thinking and what they were feeling. And I looked at a wide range of white people. So all those people who are part of the sale, the seller, the trader, the purchaser, and you see a range of thoughts and emotions. You see, as you said, guilt, you see denial, lots of denial that you're not actively denying anymore. You've already internalized a sense that these people are not like us. So you're not actively saying they're not like us necessarily because it's just known, it's understood. And so 
I saw lots of, of responses. So you see the abolitionists, some of the abolitionists were saying, you know, I watched this girl up on the auction block. She looks so sad. And what a disgrace that we're doing this in America. One really struck me because my first job out of law school was at the Department of Justice. And that building takes up, this is in Washington, D.C., takes up the block between 9th and 10th Street on Pennsylvania Avenue. And one of the abolitionists says, you know, right here on the corner of 10th and Pennsylvania, they're selling people out in the open. It just took me back. This is a place I know. The FBI building is across the street. Justice is over here. And they're saying, what what a shame, you know, on Capitol Hill, they're selling people out in the street. And so this should really end. And then you have other people, even from the North, who say, oh, you know, they were selling them, but they didn't seem to really care. Like the people being sold didn't seem perturbed. They didn't seem upset. And then you've got the people who beat people so that they don't express emotion, you know, or they threaten them when they're dressing them to be sold. So a range. Now, somebody who emerged in that chapter, and I I talk about him a lot in that chapter, is Thomas Chaplin, who was a slave owner on St. Helena's Island off the coast of South Carolina. And I had access to him because he kept a journal for many years. As a 17-year-old, his father died and he inherited, I think, 70 people and starts farming. And he's apparently not very good at it. He also drinks. And so in the journal, you see him saying that the sheriff is coming to see some of my Negroes and sell them. And then give that money to the people to whom he owes the debt. And he decides, I'm going to sell them myself. So I'm going to go around the sheriff. And then he, he reflects on his feelings as a slave owner who's now selling people. You know, he says, it's a terrible thing to be forced to sell some of your Negroes for no fault of their own feeling, some kind of regret on behalf, you know, for, for selling the people and caring about their feelings. And he goes back to feeling ashamed and angry at his peers who will judge him as a master. You're supposed to be in better control of yourself and your finances. So it's his own personal angst about not living up to the standards that are expected of him as a white man who owns people. And thinking about the black people. And he says, you know, it's it's a shame. It's not their fault. After they've been sent away, he talks about their family members who are left behind. He says they can't be consoled. They are so sad about this. And so he is one of the few that gives you a little hint. Thomas Chaplin owned 70 people. That means he knows them. So he's selling 10 people out of 70, he knows who their family members are. He knows who is suffering because of this loss. And he he talks about that. He also doesn't go down to the quarters to pull out the people to be sold. He sends an agent. He sends somebody to do it. And he sends somebody to sell them in Charleston. He's not facing them. 
because he knows that what he's doing is causing pain for them and for the people they've left behind. And so there are just lots of examples in the chapter of the different positions that people, white people were in. And, you know, I talk about one man who, and this was something I had never even thought about. He ran a boat when people were sold from one area to the other, he had a, a boat that took the people who were sold. And he said, you know, I used to let people, the family members come onto the ship and stay there until we were ready to move them. And this one day, this woman came on and her son was being sold. And when it was time for her to get off, she wouldn't get off and they had to drag her off. And when they were out at sea, he could hear her still screaming and crying for her, her son. And eventually he quit the trade and then he became an abolitionist and was writing this booklet to say, this is a horrible thing that we're doing to people. And so there, there's just this range, you know, one, one last example from that chapter is a slave trader who was on the road and he's writing back to his wife. The top part of the letter, he says, these are people who I've sold so far and the names, you know, and the price I've sold them for. And then he's got like some pots and pans and maybe a, some, a, a horse or a mule or something. So all, here, here, here are all my expenditures. So that was the business part. And then the bottom part, he tells her how much he loves her and he's sending her some money to buy a dress. And, you know, my hope is that by Christmas, I'll be back to see you and my children. And I love you. I love you. I love you. I, yeah. And so what that letter says to me is, here's a person who is capable of love. He's capable of caring. It's not that he's dead inside, right? He's got this capacity but that is reserved for certain people, his family. And at the top of the page, there's no mention of those families that these other people were leaving behind, right? So you can love your family, but just be oblivious to, deny. I don't, I don't, I can't get deep enough into people's minds to know what the level is. Do, did you even think about it? Or is it just not something that you think about? This is your job. It's hard as a historian coming all these years later to know. You can only raise questions about it because I don't, he's not disclosing that to me. So that's what that chapter explores. And I, I thought it was important and I thought it was important to treat the white people like people, right? Not to do what many white people have done with black people, just lump them all together and think that you know them <laughs> because of the actions of one. But to, to really explore the range of emotions, beliefs, thoughts that I could get access to. But, okay, so the book is about, I want to talk about the searching because that's, that's another one, that's another like heartbreaking part of the book. Like that's a that's a huge portion. When families were separated during slavery, it kind of felt like that person was dying to a lot of people because they knew that they would likely never see them again on this side. You like talk about these songs where they just imagine 
they won't see their loved ones again until heaven. That was one way that they coped with it. But on the other side, there were a lot of people who held on to hope and tried very, very hard to like track their loved ones and try to stay in touch and find them, even while both of them were still enslaved. What you've just pointed out is this, it's like, how do you even carry that? And I think that was one of the things that drove me as I was doing the research. And I, you know, in the end, you still don't really know. But what I saw was your wife is being sold. You find out that day people come out of the fields and there's a coffle, a group of people chained together being led to sale or led south. And that's when you realize that the wife you left at home this morning has now been sold and is being taken away. And people would sing these songs, like the group, the community would sing these songs that are about seeing you in heaven, right? Because our time on earth together is over. You haven't died, but you may as well have died because I know that I'm probably not going to see you again. I don't know where you're going. I don't know where you'll end up. Will it be? You, if you're in Virginia and this is happening, you may not even know about Mississippi at this point or Alabama, you know. And so on the one hand, there is that finality or sense of finality. On the other hand, what we see even during slavery, but much more so after, is that despite that finality, there's this hope that we'll see each other again. And, you know, maybe it's akin to the hope that many people have around death, you know, that we'll see each other again after death. But, you know, I mentioned the ads before. People were placing ads in newspapers. I found a few during slavery in a paper that started publishing in Ohio, but many more ads after slavery ended where people are looking for family members 20 years later, 15 years later. They may not even tell you how many years, but they lost their children as children. And over all these years, they held out hope of seeing each other again. And that's really what got me started on this book. I started coming across the ads in these black newspapers. And so on the first page of the introduction, I have one of them. I can read it if you, if you like. Those are a big portion of the book. I think it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So this ad was placed by Thornton Copeland in the Color, Tennessee and in Nashville, Tennessee on October 7th, 1865. And that's significant. So 1865. Um, October. So the Civil War had ended in April of that year. So he says, information is wanted of my mother, whom I left in Fauquier County, Virginia in 1844. And I was sold in Richmond, Virginia to Samuel Copeland. I formerly belonged to Robert Rogers. I am very anxious to hear from my mother and any information in relation to her whereabouts will be very thankfully received. My mother's name was Betty and was sold by Colonel Briggs to James French. Any information by letter addressed to the Color Tennessee in Box 1150 will be thankfully received. So the date 1865 is important because that's the year the Civil War ended, but it's also what 21 years after 
he had been sold away from his mother. And he gives us all the information that he has, I think, where he left her. He says he was sold in Richmond, big slave markets in Richmond, multiple. And he tells you who he was sold to, who he used to belong to, his mother's name. He only had a first name. And he said, my mother's name was Betty. So he knows that maybe it's not even Betty anymore. And he tells you who she was sold to. And he's now in Tennessee, doesn't tell us you know, where he had been in between, but he's giving you the names of these white men because maybe somebody would recognize their names and might be able to help him piece that trail together. And I am struck by the kind of information he's giving us but the thing that really struck me was that 21 years later, he was looking for his mother. And I say in the book, I don't know how old he was when he was sold. He doesn't give us that information, but he was certainly old enough to have this kind of information. He was not six, probably, you know, so he could have been a teenager. Um, he could have been in his 20s. I don't know how old he was, but He's giving the information that he knows in that world might have meaning. It's the white men who would be known, who might be known, somebody, somewhere. And it's probably going to be a black person, right? He's placing it in a black newspaper, might remember Robert Rogers, or there was this woman named Betty who used to belong to Colonel Briggs and they took her to such and such a place. It's not even clear how he knows who she was sold to, right? Were they sold at the same time to two different people? It's just fragments, little pieces here. But I have found over 1,200 of them. And other since the book came out, other people have been looking and collecting ads. So I don't know what the total is now, but People also wrote letters to the Freedmen's Bureau once the war ended. And so nobody was keeping records of these people. The record that might be kept is what was in that slave trader's letter to his wife. I sold these five people and here's the price. And the people only have a first name. And we don't know where they came from. We don't know where he purchased them. We don't know who their, their people were. And people were persistent. I found ads until 1903 in the newspapers. So slavery ended in 1865. These separations had occurred before 1865. And 1903, people are still looking for family members. And at that point, some of them are looking for specific names. Others are just looking for family members. I came from this place, I used to belong to this person, and I'm looking for any of my kin, any of my kinfolk. Yeah, it's a, I don't know how you even characterize it. It's devastating. But this hope, this sense of, one of my students said, I don't know if it's hope, I think it's despair. He, he couldn't fathom that you would still be hopeful. He said, I think it's these ads are just a last desperate measure to try to find family members. I don't know if Thornton Copeland was literate. I don't know if he actually wrote the ad himself or if he had to go and speak to the editor of this newspaper. But in any event, he had to get the information to the newspaper. Some newspapers charged for placing the ads. 
it, it was something that you put some time and attention into. And it was the culmination of these years of hoping and yearning and wondering, I would think. Yeah, the impossibility thing is like, you even talk about in the book that this rarely paid off. Like reunions did not happen often just because someone was sold away or you were sold away from them and you had no idea how many sales happened over time, what kind of name changes happened. You really didn't know. And then there's this other part where you talk about like, church announcements often would be full of people reading these information wanted ads because that's that's the best way to get it out not everyone could read so the way to get this information out a lot of these ads would be signed like please ministers read this to your congregation and that was how the word got out right the christian recorder i think that's the the paper in which i've found the most ads so the christian recorder was published by the african methodist episcopal church ame church before slavery ended, but after slavery, you see it really circulating more in the South and you just see hundreds of these ads. And many of them said, ministers of the church, please read this aloud to your congregation. And the idea was, you know, in a lot of these Southern towns, you would have one Black Baptist church, one Black Methodist church. And that's where people are going to gather on Sunday but they're also going to go there Wednesday night for prayer service. You know, my first book talked about education and after slavery ended, these churches became the schools. This is where you held school. And so this is a place where large numbers of people would come during a week. And you might only have the one copy of the Christian recorder or the, you know, the colored Tennessean or whatever it is. And, the minister or somebody else who was literate, because not all the ministers were literate in this time period, would read it aloud. And so you can imagine that an ad might reach, I don't know, 100 people, 400 people, 500 people through the course of the week. And somebody might remember something, but it's hard. I found one ad that said, I found my family members. It was the ad was read aloud in church and we found them. But then when I tried to trace back in that paper, I couldn't find the original ad. So it was it was kind of odd. You know, I'm sure that more reunifications took place than I'm aware of. I imagine that some people found family members, but there's no documentation of it in the book I talk about, there was a journalist from the magazine that still published, The Nation, out of New York. And he was in North Carolina, and he met a man who had been walking from, I think, Alabama, trying to get back to his family in North Carolina. When the journalist met him, he had walked hundreds of miles trying to get back to his family. And I only know about him because this journalist happened to meet him, talk to him, and write about it in that paper. But I'm sure there were other people like him. Some people took trains. They were able to get on a train to get back to where they had last seen their family members. And so there's no documentation. I can tell you about where I find documents that say this person got on a train or this person went to the Freedmen's Bureau to get funding, money to get on the train. And the Freedmen's Bureau said, 
okay, you're old and we don't want you dependent on the government, so we'll pay your fare. And this other person, the Freedmen's Bureau says, no, we're not paying that fare. You stay right where you are, make a life here. And so you get little bits like that, but I don't get all of it. So there are more reunifications than I'm aware of, but I think that there were certainly not even probably not even half or a quarter of the people who were separated were reunified. And something that's really important is that if you were sold, let's say in Alexandria, Virginia, where they had big auction houses and you're put on this coffle, you're chained together, you're walking and you might be going to South Carolina or to Georgia. When you leave, you don't know where you're going. Number one. Number two, they can sell you at any point along that trail. So you might get to someplace in North Carolina and somebody picks you out and says they want you. And that's the end of your journey. People were sold multiple times in their lives sometimes. And so this search for family was, (laughs) I don't want to say impossible, it was impossible to find because you could possibly find, but it was very, very, very difficult. The odds weren't great. And that is an issue you talk about. It's like, would you even recognize family if you if you haven't seen your mother, your child in 20, 30 years? If you saw them, would you know? What like role would you even have in each other's lives so many years later? Right. Yeah, would you, you, you're in your mind, you're looking for your 10 year old daughter and your 12 year old son. But now they're in their 20s or their 30s, and you can't even, you wouldn't even know them. Like, you know, the few reunifications I, I see, this is at the end of the war, and the black people have gathered to celebrate, and there's some soldiers there, and she's describing her son. And somebody takes her over to somebody else and she's describing her son. And then that's when he recognizes that she's describing him. But she's looking at him. She's standing there talking to him, but she doesn't know him because he is now 10 or 15 years older than the last time she saw him. And so, you know, a birthmark, a man who's missing a finger, You know, those are the kinds of markers that then help to identify. So there is the trying to find, knowing that you found. And then, you know, I talk in that chapter on reunification about the complications of reunification. So you're you're a child who was raised by this woman. You you called her mammy. You don't know that she's not your mother. And then somebody comes and says, I'm your mother. And the child is running and hiding in, in the skirts of you know the, the person who had raised him or who had raised him to that point. He doesn't know. And then he says, you know, in the exchange between this woman who comes and himself, he realizes that she loved him and he, he adjusts to the idea that she's his mother. But then it gets really complicated where you have adults, husbands and wives who've been separated, who had gone in other directions. You know, somebody remarried and then the husband comes back and women, you see women making different choices in those situations. 
You know, one says, when I got married to the second husband, I told him that I loved my first husband and I was only marrying him because I didn't know he was gone. He was sold away. And so I'm leaving the, the second husband and going back to my first one. Somebody else says, my second husband doesn't have anybody but me. I can't leave him. You know, so things have changed. People's lives aren't static and it, it just adds another complication to people's lives, you know. So those kinds of changes might have occurred anyway. People will obviously break up, but this is not by choice. So decades and decades after the end of the war, the end of slavery, people were still looking for their family. They were still looking for their people. They wanted to have people in this world and then you kind of trace that to the way that like black people are like still trying to do genealogies and find their people it's reading this book i can't help but like wonder about my own people i guess this book just like inspired i don't know about other readers but it really inspires me to want to do some genealogy work because there was so much separation with slavery any black family that can trace their roots to slavery in america probably has some family out there they don't know about and I, I think one of the, the things about the book is there have been people doing genealogical research for a long time. And I think that reading this book can help them to understand some of the stumbling blocks that they encounter. If you have an ancestor who enlisted in the Union Army, once Black men were allowed to enlist, you can go and find those books and trace, you know, you can find that person. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes effort. But there's no book that says these people lived on this plantation and they were sold here and then they went there. There's none of that. And so there are just lots of blockades, you know, lots of places that you just can't penetrate because very often black people only show up. If they show up at all in the records, they have one name just like Betty. And so when somebody is being sold and you find a bill of sale, if you know that that person was owned by John Brown, John Smith, and the names coincide, you can say that's your ancestor, but it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Yeah, your book kind of does leave a little like unresolvedness, but that's what ended up happening to a lot of the characters in this book. That's absolutely right. And you can't tie it up in a nice little bundle <laughs> and have a happy ending because it's not a happy ending. But people have kept looking throughout time. Yes, slavery was terrible. And separation of families is one of the ways that we see how horrible it was. Yet, people care deeply and I say somewhere that, of course, there must have been some people who just said, I'm not, I don't want to feel anything anymore. You're young, but I'm old enough to know some people who just shut down. I'm not dealing with this. I've been hurt. I'm not getting involved with anything anymore. But that's not most people. <laughs> and the book really shows how people kept caring. And they might form a new family. They may get married again. They might have other children. And they're still thinking about those other ones. And then 10 years later, 15 years later, 30 years later, they're looking for them. 
it's a book just about the humanity of these people, you know, and the complexities of the emotions that they dealt with and had to deal with. Thank you for coming on my show, Professor. Thank you. Not every story can have a nice, uplifting resolution, but for me at least, it gives me motivation to keep searching. If you like this show, definitely keep listening, tell people about it, and follow me on social media. It's at We the Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram, and at We the Black Pod on Twitter. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>